Think George Washington was the first to give up a throne in favor of democracy? Before King Arthur, who pulled a sword from a stone to win the throne? And whose origin story was the first mention of a labyrinth? I'm Rem Whitcraft, and this is Fiction Briefly. You may not have heard of Theseus, but the events of the life of this Greek hero covered all of these things and before the 8th century BCE. That's thousands of years before George Washington led the fight against the British Army, and long before David Bowie's iconic role in the movie The Labyrinth. That's not to say Washington got his democratic ideas from Theseus. Not much is known about his formal education, but according to the historians at Mount Vernon, on many occasions he said, I walk on untrodden ground, meaning he had no one to emulate as president. Yet the two figures had a lot in common. Both grew up without a father, and both were wildly popular. While the rest of Greece worshipped Hercules as the ultimate role model for men, Athens favored Theseus. George Washington was unanimously voted in as the first president of the United States and continues to be one of the most revered of past leaders. Some mythical characters have origins in real people, and as truth gets distorted, their stories take on a life of their own. As many know, what Americans are taught about Washington isn't always accurate. Think Cherry Tree in an Ode to Honesty. Creators of a story left out his failures and frailties and added in some fantastic lies because that's what legends are made of. Theseus, too, could have been based on a real man, and over time his deeds so distorted they didn't seem humanly possible. My source for the life of Theseus references mainly Apollodorus and Euripides, but for stories like these I'll also refer to psychiatrist Otto Rank's work, The Myth of the Birth of the Hero. We've seen the pattern of legendary hero time and time again, and Theseus' story follows some of the same basic rules. He has royal or supernatural parents, difficulties precede the hero's conception, and the child loses or is taken away from his parents. Theseus' father is King Aegeus of Athens. Aegeus has trouble conceiving a child before Theseus, and Theseus grows up with his mother outside the city, having no contact at all with his father. Also part of Rank's list is the hero's viewing of the father or father figure as an adversary to fight or reconcile with. Theseus must retrieve a sword and choose from beneath a heavy stone to prove he is heir to the throne. The life of Theseus begins like most heroes' journeys, with the first stage of Vladimir Propp's formula for morphology of the folktale, absentation. Theseus, to become a man, must go to Athens to show his father the sword and shoes he recovered from under the stone. Then an interdiction occurs, where the hero is told to avoid a person or a place. Theseus is told to get on his grandfather's ship and avoid the road swarming with thieves and other criminals. But there would be no story without the violation stage where the hero ignores the warning. Theseus is independent and finds sailing on a ship the easy way. 
A hero's journey doesn't start with the hero going for a ride. He has to face his fears and fight many adversaries. Theseus chooses the dangerous road of bandits and brutally kills each criminal in a way fitting for their crimes. He clears the road of danger and endears himself to the people who are now free to travel on it. When he gets to Athens, he meets two villains, King Aegeus, his father, and a sorceress named Medea, who is a known figure from Jason and the Argonauts' Quest of the Golden Fleece and is a titular character in a play by Euripides. Thinking Theseus is already too popular with the people, the villains conspire and use the trickery stage to try to poison him, but Theseus draws his sword first, making his identity known. King Aegeus, recognizing Theseus as his son, topples the poisoned cup. They soon reach the mediation stage where the hero learns what he's up against. Theseus learns that every nine years, Athens must sacrifice seven young women and seven young men to a minotaur who lives inside the labyrinth. This is punishment from King Minos of Crete, who is the stepfather to the minotaur. No one has escaped from the confusing maze of the labyrinth, but in the counteraction stage, the hero hatches a plan. Theseus volunteers as one of the youths, telling his father when he escapes the labyrinth he will sail home with a white flag on the ship to announce his victory. At the departure stage, the hero leaves the home environment, this time with a sense of purpose. Theseus sails to the island of Crete. Reaching the stage of the first function of the donor, the hero gets tested with the help of a magical agent or helper. Ariadne, daughter of King Minos, falls in love with Theseus and wants to help him escape. She knows Daedalus, the architect of the labyrinth, who tells her the way out. In exchange for the promise of marriage, Ariadne gives this clue and a ball of string to Theseus so he can retrace his steps and win his freedom. In the next stage, the hero's reaction, the hero reacts to the actions of the donor. His skills are tested or he frees a captive. Theseus agrees to the marriage and accepts her help. Once inside the labyrinth, he engages in the struggle stage where he fights the villain. Theseus finds the minotaur asleep and beats him to death with his bare hands. As usual, there is a victory stage where the villain is defeated. Theseus finds his way out of the labyrinth, collects Ariadne, and returns home. But Theseus goes through the unrecognized arrival stage. On the way home, he forgets to hoist the white sail, which devastates his father. King Aegeus throws himself into what is now called the Aegean Sea, which sets Theseus up for the wedding stage where the hero marries and is rewarded or promoted by the family or community, typically ascending to a throne. But Theseus lost Ariadne on the way and doesn't want to be king. He wants the people of Athens to rule themselves, keeping only the position of commander-in-chief. He builds a council hall and institutes the vote. He also becomes known as the leader other cities turn to for settling disputes, a role many in the United States like to see our country as serving. 
Yet Theseus keeps his reputation as defender of the wronged and helpless even after kidnapping and raping Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, attempting to kidnap Persephone from Hades with a friend, and taking Helen of Troy as a mere child with the plan of marrying her when she grew up. Luckily, Helen's brothers rescue her. The rape of Hippolyta bore Theseus a son, Hippolytus, and even with his father's violent treatment of women, Hippolytus concludes every woman is vile and not to be trusted. But ancient Athenians, too, don't seem to mind this side of their hero. After his death, they build a temple for his tomb that serves as a sanctuary for slaves and for all poor and helpless people in memory of one who through his life had been the protector of the defenseless. Sounds kind of like the dedication at the Statue of Liberty. As Americans, we take our historic rebellion against the British monarchy seriously, as well as our reputation as protectors of freedom. Our democracy started as the pursuit of religious liberty, Puritans fleeing from persecution, and ended in self-governance but we get stuck on symbolism. The symbol of freedom can't mean more than the freedom itself. The life story of George Washington is just such a symbol. If you visit Mount Vernon, his famous mansion in Virginia, you'll learn he owned slaves, that his teeth weren't manufactured from wood, but partially made from the teeth of slaves. And he lost more battles than he won in the Revolutionary War. Why do Americans get taught outright lies in our history classes? Aren't our legends allowed to be human? Like Hercules in my last podcast, Theseus and Washington are complicated heroes. One could say these men should be seen in light of the times that created them. However, Washington himself felt strongly enough about the inhumanity of slavery that he freed 123 people in his will. But that's the thing, he couldn't give up the lifestyle they provided while he and his wife still lived. His plantation remains a testament to this complicated figure, and the Mount Vernon Ladies Association of the Union do their best to keep his portrayal historically accurate. But keeping it real wasn't the intention of Lin-Manuel Miranda when he created the musical for Hamilton. I'll explore this theatrical sensation on my next podcast. Until then, you can comment on this episode or suggest new content on my Facebook page, Fiction Briefly. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you listen on. Once again, I thank Kestrel and Mexican Spy Company for all music and sound production for this show. This has been Fiction Briefly, giving you a glimpse into the mind of an artist. Thank you for listening.